So tell us, what do we need to know about the profile of a Muslim terrorist? I think the best thing is that there is not a profile for a Muslim terrorist. <laughs> this is going to be a short podcast, everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and thanks for being with us. <laughs> Christians and, and the, the zombie. zombie apocalypse. Muslims, Christians, and the zombie apocalypse. And the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> All right. We are here with Matthew Stone. So excited. Uh, welcome to the show. This week we have a special guest, Matthew Stone. He is the author of Reaching the Heart and Mind of Muslims. And uh, it's an excellent book. Highly recommend it, and we'll put a link in the show notes for those of you that would like to know more about uh, Reaching Muslims for Matthew Stone. So, Matthew, glad you could be with us today. Thank you. Glad that, to yeah, be here. Glad he came in right there. Yeah. Last time we interviewed him, he I left know. us with a long, really long pause, and Howard pause, didn't yes. edit it. And, and it sounds much better because he's not on Skype. That's right. That's he's right. in the studio. Well, not really a studio, but <laughs> it looks like a studio. He does Wemmer Center. So, um, topic of the day. Uh, Matthew has an interesting background in that he has looked at, um, studied philosophy, so PhD in philosophy and in psychology. He's a true glutton for punishment and doing two PhDs. And, uh, we were really curious if he had looked into sort of the psychology of terrorism because of his background in studying Islam, philosophy, and psychology. He's going to bring a unique perspective to this. So that's the topic for today. So tell us, what do we need to know about the profile of a Muslim terrorist? I think the best thing is that there is not a profile for a Muslim terrorist. This is going to be a short podcast, everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and thanks for being with us. <laughs> The good news is that there are several kind of debunked approaches toward um, trying to identify um, Muslim terrorists. As you can imagine, with acts of terrorism, we have been invested as a country into trying to try to find a certain way to predict who's going to commit acts of terrorism. So numerous theories have, have been developed, almost all proven to be unhelpful. They initially just went to traditional psychology, Freudian psychology, and that kind of stuff, which was not helpful at all. And then um, some other approaches came up, and I'll just give you like three debunked approaches if you want. Yeah, let's go one at a time. What was the what was the debunked approach yeah. that was most, uh, I don't know, shocking to you, one that you saw and you were like, come on. like, Well, I'm a psychotherapist, so the one I was kind of hoping would would be uh, a good approach, but it's been debunked, is that psychopathology is the cause of terrorism, that they have some kind of mental illness. Most terrorists have absolutely no mental illness whatsoever. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Can you say that slower? Yeah. Well, hold, no, and no terrorists, like as in we're talking not just Muslim, we're talking about terrorists overall, or are we right. narrowing this to Muslim terrorists? Well, I was focusing on Muslim terrorists, but terrorists overall. Well, that's what the show's about. Let's do Muslim terrorists. Well, I, I didn't know what he meant. 
Well, when you guys finish, let me know what, <laughs> what you want me to focus on. Go ahead, go ahead. Muslim terrorists. Moving forward. There you Trevor, go. We're, we're, you're not needed here, bro. Just, you know, we're going to keep moving forward. <laughs> Y'all just do what you want to do. There you go. There you go. You know, originally, I mean, if you had psychologists were the ones that were thinking about that, what do we do? We chase psychopathology. So we were trying to find some kind of a, a diagnosable condition that would be most likely to end up in terrorism, like antisocial personality disorder or something like that. And we're not finding them. We're finding the most terrorists are pretty normal people with not major psychopathology. There are some crazies out there, right? But by and large, uh, not uh, major psychopathology that we're seeing. I think that's what was so interesting about the the Boston bomber. Now, the older brother, of course, weren't able to see him right. beyond because he was was killed. But the the younger brother, I mean, he was you know playing soccer, uh, smoking weed with his friends the week before, yeah. and the next week he's engaged in terrorism. That's and right. so, is it a short process? This, I mean, I mean, how do you go from playing soccer one day to setting off a bomb at the Boston Marathon. What's that look like? Well, that is interesting. And that's kind of a different a different topic, and it's kind of where we are now. Um, uh, we were To look at it at process is actually probably the best way to do it. Instead of looking for psychopathology or uh, is there a terrorist personality, a typology, which the FBI and the CIA and NYPD and, to a lesser extent, Los Angeles Police Department, they're more, more elegant, um, we're looking at some kind of a profile and then we realize there's no terrorist profile. or The terrorist profile is just so vague and so general as to not be real helpful. For example, that they're generally between, they're males between the 18, age of 18 and 34, and if they're Muslim terrorists, they're Muslims. So... That's those are big broad strokes. You walk into any mosque and then you have all kinds of potential terrorists there. But the reality is the most of them are not going to be terrorists. So what have you just done? You've probably just alienated a lot of normal Muslims by seeing them as potential potential terrorists. So even the method of going about looking for the the type of person that might be a terrorist would be alienating simply because every there's so many that fit into that. That's right. And we've done category. we've done a horrible job at even picking out terrorists. Um, in fact, the ones who do the best job at picking out terrorists are Muslims. And often they are the ones that alert the local police or the FBI that they have concerns about a potential individual because it's in their best interest. Because as soon as there's an act of terrorism, who do they take it out on? The Muslims, right? So they're suffering. So a lot of times they're doing some self-policing now. Uh, LA, The Los Angeles police have done an excellent job of connecting with Muslims in the mosque and saying anything you see anything let us know and people you know Muslims cooperate on that it's and, in their best interest and so what do they know what are the Muslims noticing then well they'll notice something that is a helpful process in that a, a way to go about it is that they the emphasis is not then on you know psychopathology or the terrorist personality or the George Bush diagnosis was that they're they're in poverty they're not um, most Muslim terrorists are from middle to upper middle class. They're not poor people. And so Bush was wrong on that. But at least, you know, he was a nice guy on that particular point. And so the 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 thing that went, uh, that we find that the Muslims do, that's giving us most hope, and uh, a, um, a researcher by the name of Horvath has really been doing some great work in this area, is to look at the process of radicalization. Because if we look at the mm. process of what takes, you know, 
a seemingly normal kid smoking weed in Boston, right, to end up, you know, killing innocent people. That's a that that's a more fruitful fruitful venture because then if there's a process of radicalization, then we might luck out and find out a process of de-radicalization, which is where the effort has been. Great Britain has looked at that pretty good and have and even Saudi Arabia has looked at the process of de-radicalization and then even um, uh, recruited Muslims to help in the process of de-radicalization. So I think that's a much more hopeful approach. Right. That, than, that seems just as effective or if more effective yeah, it is. than uh, looking for types of people that would be a type of Muslim. Yeah. yeah. And so, that was started back way back in, in 2003. A guy by the name of Borum was looking at what are the motivations for people to enter into this process of radicalization. And so that that was a helpful that was a helpful way. And so we moved from that kind of the motivational themes that emerge to then the actual process in community of radicalization. So before we get to the process, you mentioned there was three. Uh sort of profiles one was a terrorist personality a is terrorist that... personality or typology right we thought that that might be a helpful one but can you describe not. can you describe what some of the ideas or hypotheses were about a terrorist personality was oh, it like narcissism yeah or... narcissism okay. or the lone the lone ranger you know uh, who um you know has has disgruntled you know about something and then he's lashing Lashing out, um, someone that has, um, you know, uh, a stunted growth because of uh, poor family functioning. You know, all of those kinds of those kinds of things. What, what about devoutness? Well, that's a very interesting one. I mean, because we we there's no real correlation between being devout and terrorist. You know, a lot mm. of, because if, and in fact, if we go there, we probably don't want to because. We have a lot of conservative Muslims, you know, who are quite devout that never end up engaging in any kind of terrorism. So, again, if you paint with that brushstroke, you're going to have a lot of people, you know, fingered as potential therapists who would never do that. And it's costly and it alienates the Muslim community. Right. It just sounds like with the media, like um, that interview with Sam Harris, it felt like he was kind of alluding to the idea that once you become more and more devout, it leads down the road to fundamentalism. Well, Sam would. I mean, right. he but then he, he hates religion. Yeah, I mean, he needs he, to go into therapy about religion. You know. Yeah. Right. Does Does he fit a profile for? Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. The angry atheist. Yeah. Yes. So it's interesting though because I I do recall being at a church one time and somebody kind of getting a bit frustrated uh, at the suggestion of someone else that we have Muslims in our homes and love them and and you know have hospitality and his response was well how am I supposed to know that when I encounter a Muslim how am I supposed to know whether or not he's a terrorist and I kind of thought about it for a second i thought well you you really can't but that's right. true of every person that you encounter right. is that is that yeah. fair or that's is, right so but but people do get really sort of uh, uneasy because they only see one common denominator and that is islam and that becomes the brushstroke so it's even broader than the age and the male and the gender and it just we've got 1.7 billion people now that we're concerned about and i understand that i mean people want some kind of certainty they want some control. They can't have it, right? And so they'll latch onto it even if it's false. It gives them a false sense of security. Um, a lot of people can't deal with ambiguity in the state of not knowing. Right. 
Can we talk a little bit about de-radicalization? What, what does that look like? You were saying that Saudi Arabia was even going for it? Like yeah. Trying to... Yeah. Um, it's taken a lot of different forms. There are a lot of uh, papers coming out in there. For example, one of the things that we found that in the process of radicalization, that these people, males of a particular age group, although now there are females engaging in this, will um, uh, connect, will feel alienated from um, the society at large um, for several different reasons. Uh, I know Borum, way back in 2003, said that there were major, there are about three reasons. One, that they may have sensed that an injustice has been done to them personally or that an injustice has been done to Muslims, right? We saw that theme with uh, ISIS and with Al-Qaeda, right? They were upset with Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia let... um, the Kufar, you know, the Americans on their land, and so they were ready to retaliate against them. The other thing is that age group would be the age group in which people are engaging in some kind of identity formation, and so people will find some identity in latching on to someone who's going to give them a real clear identity. So like right for the picking. That's right. Mm-hmm. And a sense of belonging, a belonging to some cause that is bigger than they are. Sounds like gangs. Yeah. Well, I know that there's been a lot of research done among the immigrant community more broadly than just Muslim, and one of the overarching sort of themes is that uh, when there's no sort of assimilation and almost a feeling of a threat of their own culture or identity or their ethnic identification, whatever it might be, that that can sometimes produce uh, violence or, you know, because they don't belong. They do feel isolated. They thought they were coming to you know, a place where they would be welcomed and have great opportunities. And then you have things go wrong. Yeah. And, uh, I I imagine that could be a huge part of the process. Huge part of the process. And even worse is that when we have the immigrants come here, often the um, power arrangements within the family, the social structure is really messed up because the family, the father and the mother was where the power was. But when they come here, it's the young kids who learned the English first and so the parents become dependent on them. And so those power differentials are messed up. And so um, great strain upon the families then. Yeah, I've never thought about it that way before. So uh, I, I grew up in an immigrant family. Ah. My parents don't speak English very well. I had to do a lot of things for them yep. and for myself, which was just random. Like, you know, kids had their parents fill out college applications as they're like, right. nope, not I did that, you know, right. and just normal kind of things. Uh, I had to translate when we had parent teachers conferences and yeah. stuff, but I never thought of it in terms of where that would put a strain on my relationship with my parents and them being less authoritative, I guess, less um, uh, someone I looked up to. Um, but you're saying that might be the case with some of these Muslim families. Well, what we're thinking is that these there's probably not a silver bullet here, that these this process of radicalization is multifactorial, right? Oh, I see what you're and saying. And that yeah. that can be one contributing factor in there. I mean, we can't seize on one, right? right? But there can be multi- multiple factors that put in place with a charismatic leader and isolation from the family, which is what we saw largely in the Boston case, right? Mm-hmm. Those two kids being isolated from... From a family. In, pa- in fact, part of uh, one of the pr- uh, proposals in Great Britain for the process of de-radicalization was to reestablish family connections. 
especially connections wow. with the with uh, with the mother. So the parents would bring a voice of reason yeah. to the radicalism. And what, what I think what disturbs me the most is that there are people that are intentionally going after trying to radicalize these young people. And we right. talked about it a little bit with how they're doing it with, through social media, yeah. YouTube videos, and, and things like that. But um, I'm a youth pastor. And I am a pretty influential person, I think, in, in the lives of a lot of these kids. And I just can't imagine somebody being an alter- alternative, like trying to get, you know, Muslim kids to become radical. That's scary. Yeah, and I think we're seeing a new expression of Islam that we've never seen before. And the confluence of two different streams within Islam that have never been brought together, that it's kind of scary in in certain expressions. I'm not saying... Most Muslims at all here. Most are going to be normal, normal, you know, normal kids uh, or normal, you know, mom and dad who are trying to make enough money to send right. their kids to college, you know, that kind of stuff. But one of the things that we're seeing was that we saw in the um, in the fifties uh, and sixties the rise of Islamic movement, right? The Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and some of the Arab countries, and the Jamaat Islami in Pakistan and you know, Indo-Pakistani area. <clears throat> that movement mentality. And then there was the Salafia movement, which was more an ultra-Orthodox expression that was not political at all. They were anti-Muslim movement. And what happened was um, both influenced a little bit by Wahhabi kind of ideology, more of the Salafia influenced by Wahhabi ideology. But what we're seeing in ISIS is the bringing together of this, um, um, you know, unbelievable fundamentalism, you know, the um, Salafia notion, which was never political before. And now it's been wedded with Islamic movement mentality. So we have a movement, and the Islamic movement was always about what? The establishment of the Islamic State. So now that's ISIS, you know, an ultra-Orthodox movement, now, though, wanting to establish the Islamic State. That's what ISIS means, you know, and that's uh, one of the few times in history we've seen that kind of confluence of ideologies. All right, so this show wouldn't be possible without sponsors. And at this point in the show is where, if you want to partner with us, we would put your ad. So if you want to be a part of the show, you You want to partner with us, you like what we're doing, you want to be on our team, what have you, bring this show to the world, then email us and let us know. And on top of that, you have uh, almost an awakening of an internal civil war between Sunni and Shia, or religious war, right. that's pouring into that. You have Western foreign policy decisions over the last decade or two that are pouring into that. You have the establishment. I mean, there's so many factors that have all kind of come together at this point in time in history that it's like a perfect storm. Yeah, and I, and maybe the U.S. contributed to that. Maybe I mean, so. what we're finding yeah. that, you know, in the 50s in Iran, it was the CIA that overthrew the legitimate leader of um, of Iran and placed the Shah of Iran in there because we liked him. He cleaned up well and wore a suit. And so, um, but then he radical, you know, really upset the locals because he even got Baha'is and he put him in as secret police for uh, for himself and his, um, you know, his regime, um, Muslims tend to not to like Baha'is because they believe that there was a prophet after Muhammad, right? And so that alienated them. So, and all everybody, I mean, the CIA came out in the last few years acknowledging that that's what they what they did, 
That was because England had invited the U.S. to come in there because Iran was moving toward nationalizing oil companies, and Great Britain didn't want them to, to do that. That created alienation, and so the Khomeini came along to overthrow that, and his announcement was that the United States was the great, great shaitan, and we're still dealing with the fallout of, of some of that. Okay, so can we go back to what you had just said about uh, the Islamic State? Yeah. Is that – I'm trying to wrap my head around it, why that is such a big deal, I guess. Maybe because I've always just thought uh, Muslims um, you know, had, had governments, but obviously not for Islam itself. But you know, they, would, they would have a Muslim-controlled you know, controlled government or a, shari- a, mu- a government under Sharia law, that kind of thing. But when you have – like let's just translate it into Christian terms. Uh, so we have a certain group in – Christendom that decides to make a Christian state like for <laughs> Christians only kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. So like politicizing the uh, a certain movement like um let's let's say uh Brownsville revival. <laughs> no, I think I think more than I think the better comparison would be as though the Catholic Church ceased to be and there was no pope and there was no Vatican and then a 100 years from now there was a resurgence of Catholicism and the potential for a new Pope and a new Vatican. And you can imagine how there would be movements towards reviving uh, the Catholic Church. Mm. And then they would take over a certain swath of land and call it their own and then continue to spread that land. And that's kind of what we're... To the Holy Roman Empire, right? Yeah. Wow. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. And then keep in mind, it's not been that long ago that the caliphate died, 1924, 1926, you know, and so, um, and it was the Islamic movement that came up, the movement-oriented organizations like the Ikhwan and the Jamaat came up after that. And so with the death of the caliphate, and now ISIS is wanting to bring back the caliphate, and they've declared that they have the caliph. What are your thoughts, uh, Matthew, regarding the clear disunity between al-Qaeda and ISIS and sort of jockeying for position. This is what kind of cracks me up with these religious movements, and we see it in our own religious history as well, right? You've got popes fighting for who's the real pope and arguing and and fighting, and there's inward fighting, and it's already happening in the movements. You had all of these movements sort of happening simultaneously with Boko Haram, al-Shabaab, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, al-Qaeda in Iraq and Syria and all these different places. And then all of a sudden ISIS comes, they have this sort of unifying factor, but there's still a holdout by, it seems, Ayman Zawahiri and Al-Qaeda basically saying they're they're at odds with one another. In fact, they're accusing each other of having spies and killing suspected spies of Al-Qaeda to ISIS and ISIS to Al-Qaeda. Yeah, I think that there's always been somewhat of that thread within Islam, but I think what we see now because of um, social media that the rate at which that is happening is is really picked up, and so and and the other thing that is is that 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 helps me to try to make sense out of that is that the the um, the um, the Salafia, this ultra orthodox interpretation of Islam, broke away from the madhabs or the normal schools of thought within Sunni Islam, right? And the Salafia broke away and said they had to go back to the Quran itself without the whole history of interpretation of the Quran and the schools of interpretation. So anyone at that point could hold themselves up and as an expert on Islam and go online or whatever and get a nice, uh, nice following. The leaders of ISIS, and if you look at Al-Qaeda um, and, and those kinds of movements, are not Muslim scholars. 
They are people who are not trained in interpretation of Quran. They're doctors, lawyers, eye surgeons, you know, things, uh, engineers who don't have that history of interpretation of Quran, but they have some knowledge and can hold themselves up as experts. Okay, so are you tying this back to it all, the first sort of dissenters that refused to submit to the Caliph Ali, the Kardajites that basically were arguing for a pure sort of Quranic movement and refusing to submit to the authorities of the scholarship right. of the Caliph and all that and started their own thing. Do you see ISIS as sort of a neo-Kardajite movement in that sense? That's exactly how I see them, is, is just picking up that ancient theme that it like you know it was dormant like a nasty virus and then it's come out you know in recent terms because conditions were suitable for for that i think social media really helped with that on the other hand social media has helped with other things the, the whole arab spring and the rising up against unjust rulers came about because of twitter and things like that so there's great hope there i hope people read you know rock the casbah by robin wright that shows these wonderful interesting movements that have that have come up. But, you know, this is all new stuff, and we're seeing some radical expressions going on. It'll be really interesting the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years to see what direction this stuff goes. Okay, so in review, psychological profiles, there is none. But there is hope because uh, governments are working on de-radicalizing Right, Muslims. And uh, looking at the process of radicalization, what that is. Right, so becoming more... uh, involved in that in that process what so is and you mentioned the word hope a lot is there hope like are we is this going to turn out better for us because we're not going to, we're going to be able to prevent terrorist acts because of this kind of thing you're talking to a christian i always have <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's we, like uh there's no there, hope. There, you know, there's still game a over Je- guys there's still a jesus there is hope you know <laughs> game over man <laughs> but you know as far, as far as the listener they're probably listening to this because they're like we want to know who the terrorist are so we can avoid them and tell the authorities we need to. So we want to leave them with something like, so there is good, there's positive movement towards uh, uh, preventing more terrorist acts because they're figuring out what uh, what's actually effective, which is de-radicalization. And I do think that as soon as that catches on and all of our research money doesn't go toward worthless things like profiling Muslims mm. to actually the process of radicalization, that we may begin to see some results. Wow. So I think we got to do a part two because I have a question that we're just going to leave people hanging with for a week because we're not going to publish these like day after each other. It's going to be a week. But the question is, so what do you say to the person who says, well, ISIS, that's the true nature of Islam? guys are looking forward to part two of this series so be sure to check back next week and we will release part two of matthew stone and please remember to write reviews at itunes and uh, send us in comments um yeah we look forward to hearing from you